Hey, this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And today, I sit across from Mr. Gary Topp, a concert promoter who's a key figure in shaping the cultural landscape of Toronto in the 70s and 80s. Vibrating Toronto. He was vibrating Toronto in the 70s and 80s. So along with promoter, fellow promoter, fellow Gary, Gary Cormier, he uh, was responsible for introducing Toronto to punk and new wave, having brought in bands like The Police, Talking Heads, and the Ramones to Canada for the first time. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm actually in your element right now. Typically, I do the show in the studio, but we are at... We are in the boardroom of our co-op. That's right. In the Rosedale Ravine. I just got a little history lesson on the way down here, too. Yeah, it's great. So now to say, Gary, we were talking earlier about the fact that you shaped the cultural landscape of Toronto. Now, that's a bold statement, I know. It is. But, But you actually did. Which is fantastic. So you, you book bands into a lot of venues in your time. Larry's Hideaway, uh, Massey Hall, Edge, and Horseshoe Tavern, of course. You brought in bands like The Stranglers, MC5, I think was one of them, Talking Heads. Your vision was at least a decade ahead of its time. I don't know. You know, I think our vision was to book music that we liked, music out of our own record collections, artists that we wanted to bring. Now, you're, you're saying about punk. Um, I mean, our vision wasn't strictly that. We brought in lots. Of, we were the first people to bring in African groups, or at least the first white people to bring in African groups. And we won reg, uh, black music awards. And, you know, so we were bringing in reggae. We were bringing music from all of them, Bul- Bulgaria, hmm. Germany, France, you name it. But... We brought in lots of jazz. I mean, but Cecil Taylor, Sun Ra, Ornette Coleman, uh, Archie Shep. My musical sort of background or my love of music started when I was a kid listening to radio. I always thought that, the, you know, you'd listen to CBC. We're talking like early 50s, I guess. And um, I always thought that that they weren't playing records that the you know there was like a this stage i'm used to a stage because my dad when i was young young yeah. they he take me to the y at bathurst and um at spadina and bluer mm-hmm. to watch movies on sunday afternoons and they had this big stage and aside from loving the movies i always imagined you know what was going on behind the wings of this behind the screen and always wanted to have this stage in my house and how great it would be and so when i was listening to the radio cbc which was what you got in those days i always thought it was like a uh there was a stage Mm -hmm. and all the this interviewer like yourself was on stage interviewing all these famous stars or whatever whatever it was yeah then instead of them playing a record i thought that the singers were there with a the band and they were playing these songs. That's so I funny. had no idea. I did too. I remember that sitting in my bedroom and listening to the radio. I was probably, I don't know, seven or eight years old. Yeah. And I actually thought that people like Diana Ross and the village people came into this place that the show was being transmitted from and played and then yeah, left. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, they, uh, you know, I just loved it. I guess because my parents like Broadway musicals and went to New York a lot and, I started really liking, you know, the old classic Broadway musicals like Oklahoma and Pajama Game and Little Abner and Mm -hmm. South Pacific and My Fair Lady and all this stuff. And that was my first real interest in music. And then rock and roll came along. My parents 
took me to, which I just recently discovered was the first rock show in Maple Leaf Gardens, which was Bill Haley and the Comets. No way. They, they took me. They were going and they brought me. How old were you at the time? Uh, it was early 50s, like 53. You know, I was wow. like seven or eight. Wow. But they were buying these records. I, I actually still have a Bill Haley and the Comet album, the first one, Rock Around the Clock. That, no way. That um, I, I've had now for, you know, going on 65 yeah. or more years. You know, then there was Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps and Elvis, of course. And mm-hmm. The Beatles after that, shortly after well, that. Well, uh, the Beatles, I um, it wasn't the Beatles for me. I wasn't really a huge fan of the Beatles. Well, I got into folk music. Okay. In the late fifties, listening to the Weavers and Pete Seeger, and well, basically them. And then it, the genre developed, and there were all sorts of uh, other groups. Um, but in nineteen sixty one, I was in New. My parents would take me to New York. They'd go to clubs in the in. In the village, in mm-hmm. Greenwich Village. And um, one time we went to see this group called the Terriers. And the Terriers in the 50s had a big hit called the Banana Boat Song. Okay. Day-o, oh, yeah. day-o, yeah. day they come anyway. Want to go home. Uh, but in the 60s, it was a completely different group. In the 50s, it was a trio, and one of the groups was Alan Arkin. In the 60s, one of the other guys was from the original group, was still in the group, but it was a quartet. Okay. And two of the artists were Eric Weisberg, mm-hmm. who played banjo specifically, but other instruments. Eric Weisberg is the guy who played on the Deliverance soundtrack. Oh, that, that famous blink, blink, blink. Yeah. Really? And, um, and Mar- in those days, the, um, the, uh, the folk groups, when they were all tuning their acoustic instruments, there would be one guy who did a stand-up routine. Oh, really? And in the Terriers, the stand-up guy was this Marshall Brickman. Okay. And Marshall Brickman played bass in the group, acoustic bass and stand-up bass in the in the group, and also played some, you know, was a good mu- string musician, you know, mandolin as well. So he did the stand-up. Now, he went on to become, to co-write with Andy, uh, with Andy Warhol, with um, Woody Allen, his earlier movies. Hence went on to uh, to be the co-writer of Jersey Boys among other oh, things. Wow. So they were pretty. They were a pretty hot group, mm-hmm. and I met them. Okay. And those days they didn't like have dressing rooms. You know, they were tuning up in the lobby and <laughs> hanging around in the crowd and stuff. I didn't bring. I didn't. I didn't financially bring them, but I set them up to come to a folk club on Church Street called the the Fifth Peg. Okay. Uh, but that was kind of my first promoting thing but when i was old enough to go into the village myself mm-hmm. my parents would sometimes let me go with a friend bring a friend with me to new york you know you'd be hanging out in the walking on the streets and you'd see all these guys that you saw in yorkville in the clubs in yorkville uh, yeah right you know you, you precocious little kid you'd go up hey you remember me we talked and blah blah, blah or whatever yeah there was this one black folk singer played 12 string guitar who was a songwriter mm-hmm named Len Chandler. I didn't know until I read Bob Dylan's Chronicle book that he was very instrumental in Bob Dylan getting noticed in New York. Anyway, I meet Len Chandler on the street. We're talking, and I'd seen him a number of times here. He was good. 
but he never really made it. Mm-hmm. I said, so anybody we should go see at the club? And he said, go to Gertie's Folk City mm-hmm. and see this young kid who's just in town opening for John Lee Hooker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his name is Bob Dylan. <laughs> that was that. Yeah. I was into folk music, but Bob Dylan changed everything for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, anyway, from folk music to, you know, you got into the blues and gospel like staple singers. And, and then one one afternoon, I was sitting in this girl's backyard with Chum on, yeah. studying for an exam with the transistor radio on, and Not Fade Away comes on, which I'd never heard before. And, whoa. And it was like from blues, and I loved Buddy Holly, and I knew the song from Buddy Holly. Yeah. I still have my original Buddy Holly story record. I, I never really got into be- the Beatles, but when I heard the Stones, I was a fanatic Rolling Stone fan, so much so that at one time I wrote a letter to Chum asking why they wouldn't play, why they wouldn't play the Rolling Stones, but they would play the Platters, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, mm-hmm. who were, you know, were junkies. And Dean Martin, who's supposedly an alcoholic. Yeah. And Surfin' Bird and PJ Proby with that stupid haircut. And <laughs> and they wouldn't play the Rolling Stones. And I got a letter back saying, basically, when they clean up their act, we'll play them. I think it was 1964 when I wrote that letter. And that was such an influential letter at at the time that when the Rolling Stones played at the Elma Combo, mm-hmm. everybody knew they were playing at the Elma Combo, but Chum FM at the time were were promoting this party with the Rolling Stones. And if you want to go to see the Rolling, be party with the Rolling Stones in 25 words or less, tell us why you deserve to get in. And I wrote, I deserve to get in because of the enclosed letter. And I enclosed the two letters. Supposedly Mick Jagger was judging them, but who knows. But anyway, I won. Oh, wow. That's great. So that's how my wife Heather and I got into see the Rolling Stones. That, you know, and I was standing uh, in front of Bill Wyman, sitting in front of Bill Wyman as far away as you mm-hmm. and I are right now. So I was into the Rolling Stones and sort of got into more underground stuff. And, you know, and you're asking, it's a long story to, to answer about the Beatles, but mm-hmm. um, I never really got into the Beatles till I went to see Hard Day's Night. Okay. And I just freaked out about that movie. It was such a great movie. Like, yep. not just the Beatles, but it was such a great movie. And I sort of got them. I've seen that movie, you know, easily a hundred times. Yeah. Was the the disparity between the Beatles and the Stones? People often say, well, you know, I was kind of one or the other. I liked the Beatles, didn't like the Stones, or vice versa. Oh, totally. You know, and often the Stones are are described as the dirty Beatles, right? Or were back then. Was there that much of a difference between the two? Well, at the time, they certainly looked scruffier. Yeah. Back to Bob Dylan. To me, Bob Dylan, I mean, I didn't think of it at the time, but in those days, in the early 60s and the 50s, when you think of the word punk, you think of rebel without a cause. To me, Bob Dylan was a punk. He was a punk folk singer. And I think the Rolling Stones, you know, so was Elvis and Gene Vincent. Yeah. But the Rolling Stones were punk. I mean, they dress great. and uh, But I guess in those days, I mean, the pretty things look way dirtier than the Rolling Stones. It was definitely, we like the Stones, we like the Beatles, we like Jerry and the Pacemakers. And yeah. it's true because, you know, the Tammy show, 
TAMI yeah, show. TAMI. When that first played in Toronto, it was on a Saturday morning okay. at various theaters. The kids at my high school, Forest Hill Collegiate, which was like a hellhole for me, <laughs> you know, kids like, you know, one girl loved Jerry and the Pacemakers and one girl loved, you know, people loved the Beach Boys. Not too many people liked the Rolling Stones, but when we went to that show that morning, people were like booing other groups and booing James Brown, and, you know, booing the Rolling Stones and booing Jerry and the Pacemakers. So, it was like wrestling in, in its heyday when it was racist. Yeah. You know, so oh. the Portuguese crowd were, you know, were booing the Mexicans and the Mexicans were booing, you know, it was like wow. race against race in the ring. Wow. That's what it was. Like the Sheik was the Arab. Everybody hated, mm-hmm. you know, six day war, et cetera, you know. Yeah. There were the, the different factions of yeah. it. And the Rolling Stones really were not as popular as the Beatles. Mm-hmm. When the Rolling Stones played here, they played two shows in 65 and one in 66. The first show drew 9,000 people. The second show drew 11. The third one drew 13,000. Mm-hmm. And I have all the clippings and everything, and the press hated them. Vulgar. Yeah. It was kind of the same kind of press as when the Ramones played New Yorker. Everybody said the same thing about them. Yeah. Going to see the Rolling Stones... Maple Leaf Gardens in those days, the original band was like going to see the Sex Pistols, I presume. Yeah. I never saw the, you know, I've been to, been through a lot of punk shows, but that's what it was like. It was like Riotous and Dave Mickey, who was the big DJ at the time, who's now, you know, David Marsden from CFNY and The Edge. He emceed the first show. And he had everybody, though the seats weren't fastened down in those days Uh on the floor. He had everybody moving their seats closer. There was like a riot. You know, aisles disappeared, the whole thing. But they were rooted in blues, and, you know, that's how I really got into them. Plus, they looked amazing, and and they were like a black band, and their live shows were like a soul review, you know. They had a million opening acts, and and they, you know, it, it it was great. Yeah. I'm not so enamored with them now. My favorite shows, the two of them, were that Bob Dylan show at, at Gertie's and any three of the Rolling Stones at Maple Leaf Gardens. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of lost interest in them when, they became, when Brian Jones left. I'm not trying to be a purist, but mm. he was even more the focal point than uh, Mick. Well, a lot of people don't know that he was the actually, he was the founder and the leader of the band. Yes, he Jagger was. Jagger joined later. And Jagger was so nervous, apparently, that when he joined the band, he would, he would drink like three pints before he got up to play yeah. at the pubs. They well, I believe that. that Jagger had him uh, murdered. I read that, yeah. There's a great book by Christopher Anderson called Jagger. And apparently, and this is a theory, yeah, uh, they were swimming that night. I don't, yeah. know, I don't know whose house they were at. but At his. He drowned in the pool. Yeah. And there's talk of the fact that it wasn't a natural death. Yeah. So, which is... I mean, that's I don't against know. a theory. I, but. I think they were totally jealous. And um, Mick and Brian were definitely sex symbols. Mm-hmm. But Brian, I think Brian had the dick. <laughs> <laughs> like, but, like, look at the way he dressed compared, you know, he was yeah. a stud in the group. And, yeah. um, but I think they were kind of jealous. And Brian was doing a lot of drugs. But, you know, what do I know? There's a new movie coming out, you know, about Brian Jones. So, yeah. It'll be interesting Not that to see. anybody's got answers. I'm sure one day we'll probably all be dead by the time it comes out. But 
I think there was some hanky panky going on. Yeah, yeah, I agree. They, uh, I, I do know that Jagger convinced Richards to force him out. There's a lot of tension in the band, and Jones was taking more and more drugs. This is around the time of uh, Beggar's Banquet. He had written uh, Jumpin' Jack Flash, and he, I think he'd written it on the piano, and they were making fun of him. And then they took the song and turned it into something else. Or, yeah, but anyway. Yeah, I don't know the stories. But anyway, yeah. uh, I did love the Stones. Mm-hmm. I didn't like all the sort of poppy mm. British bands, but um, I liked a lot of the ones that kind of related back to my my interest in in the folk music. And at that time, I was also getting into jazz, discovering like Coltrane and more of the new you know, almost free jazz, mm. the new jazz that was coming out of the 60s. And mm-hmm. it all kind of fit together for me Yeah, with that. But then I did love the Love and Spoonful too. And it's still my one of my favorite groups of all time. I could be the world's greatest Zolianowski air guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> he was so ahead of his time as far as a guitar player. He could blow anybody away. Mm. They were American. Right? New York. Well, actually, Zoll was originally from Toronto. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. I once saw Zoll at a um, an open hoot nanny okay. at the Village Corner Club at the corner of Paris and Avenue Road, just north of Davenport. But he lived in Toronto, and then he moved moved to New York and mm-hmm. met John Sabat. You know, they all be put this band together. But mm-hmm. but they again were they were like almost folk. They were taking. The sort of the jug band music, you know, of the 30s and of the f- folk 60s, right. and combining all that into their music, mm-hmm. you know, as as one of their songs, jug band music. So now, were you a fan of some of the other bands of that time, like the Turtles, the Mamas and Papas? I never liked them. I mean, I like their songs, but I was never a fan of their mm. of them. A, a friend of mine who's now like as high as it gets in the medical profession, yeah. loved. The Beach Boys, mm. and you know their Pet Sound album, which I now appreciate. I mean, I like some of the songs on it more so than sort of the Beach songs. I, you know, he'd show me this album, you know, with with the Beach Boys on it, feeding the animals in the <laughs> zoo, and I said, "Which ones are the Beach Boys?" <laughs> it's kind of juvenile, right? <laughs> I was in his car actually. He had an MGB, and we were driving up Chaplin Crescent towards Eglinton the night uh, of the lunar landing, and we stopped the car and we smoked a joint and listened to it on the radio and looked up at the moon right there with top down. That's awesome. But um, I really can't, at the moment, can't think of what bands, but, you know, Stones and Love and Spoonful Mm -hmm. were doing it for me big time. I mean, I did like the Jefferson Airplane. Yep. I never liked the Grateful Dead. Uh, although I saw them both when they played at uh, Nathan Phillips Square and then and then at uh, the O'Keefe Center and um, Old Cream. Mm. But it was all kind of rooted in jazz and blues. Blues, yeah. It wasn't the pop, although I do, I mean, I love pop, but that's what I like through the 60s. I, I wasn't real. I was never a hippie or anything. I was really into, um, when I was in high school, discovered Andy Warhol mm. and you know, followed that whole art scene and his movies and whatever. And uh, when I was in Centennial College, I went to Centennial College. I ended up running a film society there. Mm-hmm. We showed Chelsea Girls. This is like in 68 or something. And um, I knew about the Velvet Underground. Yeah. 
actually the morality squad came in and busted us <laughs> in school for showing the Chelsea girls. Wow. Morality squad. Really? What's really? Uh, yeah. But then we discovered how to show it. We figured out how to show it through a lawyer, through our law teacher, actually. Make it a club where it's private in, uh, membership. And you can show it. But when we showed the Chelsea girls in front of the screen on the stage, I had a chair mm -hmm. with a little portable record player and we were just playing the Vel first Velvet Underground album, just coming out of the speaker in the record player. Then Roxy music appeared, you Brian know. And, yep. and then, you know, I, I had a, a subscription to the Village Voice for probably 20 years. No way. From when I was a kid, well, not 20 years, I guess for about 10 years, more than 10 years. Yeah. That's how I learned about all these stuff, the folk music and the art scene and everything through the Village Voice. And so, you know, in the early 70s, you know, I'd read about all these new bands that were playing in New York. And as I was running a movie theater, that's how, how I knew about the Ramones. Mm-hmm. How I related to these bands, they resembled the 60s jazz scene that I was into. Hmm. Something new was happening. Okay. Nothing new had happened. I mean, the Rolling Stones were new, I thought, because what white British bands were like playing that kind of music, right? It was interesting. And the Ramones, I mean, who had ever heard anything like the Ramones or television? Yes. Or Wayne County or Talking Heads? Yeah. You know, so it was all kind of, hmm, this is really interesting. This is what I like. Mm -hmm. These are the kind of movies I show at my movie theaters, you know, the Roxy and and the New Yorker. Yeah. Now, did you get down to CBGB's? Or I was Max there a few Kansas times. City? Yeah. Not too often, but I, I went there a couple of times. Yeah. Who'd you see there? I saw the Ramones. I saw Mink DeVille, which oh, wow. had a, a really heavy effect on me mm -hmm. and ended up doing many shows with him over the years. I mean, we would bring him to the edge and he'd play for a week. Mm -hmm. We did that a few times and then a few other shows in different places. But yeah, he, he really blew my mind. Mm -hmm. Was um, Blondie in and around I never that? really liked Blondie. Oh, really? I no, I was never... I mean, I liked her songs, but I never thought that she was a good performer. Yeah. She seemed flat to me and not awkward. Like, like Patti Smith was awkward. Blondie just didn't have it as a live stage performer. Really? She yeah. felt, I hate to use the term because I'll be called a sexist, but she, and it doesn't have anything to do with sex or her being a woman, but she was like a dead fish on stage. Mm, mm -hmm. She just didn't have, she didn't have it. Yeah. For me. I mean, if she's popular and she was popular, people loved her. I was never really interested in booking her. I never really, um. Really? Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. She took a lot of stick for that because she didn't really have a, she just kind of like jumped around. She was cute, and, you know, and, and, uh, you know, dressed well and all that. And the band was good. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I'm really into the performance. Yes. You know, and back to the Beatles. I mean, maybe they were good performers, but they weren't performers like the Rolling Stones. Right. Yeah. Who were like James Brown. Yeah. It's swagger. Yeah. Is that extra? And she didn't have that. The yeah. Ramones had that. Television didn't need that. Wayne yeah. County had that. Tough Darts, Robert Gordon had that. Talking Heads were like psycho, mm -hmm. or he was. I mean, you know, he scared you. Yeah. But the whole music scene, it was like, was something new. Mm -hmm. And I had to do it. So I built a stage in front of my wife's brother's hillbillies came down from Huntsville and built a concrete stage in front of the screen at the New Yorker. Okay. 
And the building inspector, when he saw it, said, what did you do this for? It's like a fallout shelter. You can put an elephant on this. <laughs> you know, why didn't you do it in wood? Oh, what did we know, right? Yeah. <laughs> so so what happened after that? After the... So you started to bring bands in. We started to bring bands. The first band was a tryout of the power and the lights and all that, and that was Robbie Rocks. But then the first show was the Ramones, three shows in two nights, mm -hmm. two midnight shows and an evening show. Second show was an Indian Sarod player named Ali Akbar Khan, mm -hmm. who I had seen in, in at Eden's Auditorium, now the Carlu, uh, you know, back in, I guess, in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And the third show was Wayne County and the Backstreet Boys. And, you know, lots of jazz. Cecil Taylor a couple times there. John Cale, mm -hmm. Tom Waits. Oh, wow. Really? Uh, Flying Burrito Brothers. Cool. You know, Nils Lofgren, who plays with Bruce Springsteen. Springsteen yeah. um, Lightning Hopkins. So, our, you know, we weren't just punk. Yeah, yeah. And, wow. and in those days, uh, the one thing about Gary and me, we booked what we liked. So we were booking, we were booking for our peers. We weren't thinking about kids, people, kids 10 years younger or older. Right. We were coming from our backgrounds of knowing music our parents liked. Yeah. You know, even from the forties, thirties, whatever, and into the future. We, it was a pretty very, just like the movies that I showed. I mean, I showed two different movies every day for about five years. Mm. And not just any movie, only movies that I w wanted to show. Yeah. Not just the big blockbusters or whatever, you know, and movies, as I say, from all eras. I mean, our biggest, some of our biggest movies were, uh, you know, the Marx Brothers, all Night of Marx Brothers or Mae West or whatever. But mm -hmm. um, I don't know yeah. what the question was. Went well, the topic. But I think Maybe. that sets you apart. Pardon right. me? I think that sets you apart. And I like the fact that you guys did that. You did what you wanted to do. Yeah. You, you, you oh, what I was going to say was, but in, so in that, in that era, and we were older than our audience by, you know, not that much, but we were. Mm -hmm. A lot of kids grew up with me, you know, from the Roxy, but they were interested in hearing new things, which I can't say people are now. Yeah, we might be interested in hearing the new Billie Eilish single. But we're not interested in hearing the new jazz or, right. you know, the new Afro-funk band or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Or even movies. There's not too many theaters in Toronto that show obscure movies anymore. You're right. Tell me a little bit about the last Pogo. You and uh, Gary Cormier at the Horseshoe Tavern. We moved from the New Yorker. Yeah. We got, well, we didn't get thrown out of the New Yorker, but we didn't want to... Um, you know, the rent became too high. Mm -hmm. We needed a new space. And the guy who was Peter Graham, who was running, running the horse, you didn't own it. Mm -hmm. Jack Starr owned it. The music was still underground. There was a scene of about a thousand people, mm -hmm. including the band, including the hundred bands. Yep. It was small, but he asked us if we wanted to do our shows now at the horseshoe. Mm -hmm. And we said yes. And Gary and I, after our last show at the New Yorker, and Gary had been a carpenter, was a good carpenter, mm -hmm. went to the horseshoe and we moved the stage, which was the original location of the stage was when you walk into the horseshoe, when you, you go th past the bar and you walk up some stairs and on your left is a bar, right? Yes. 
where Teddy worked. Well, that's where the original stage was. You were looking horizontally to the, to the bar. Wow. Okay. And we moved it to where it currently is now. And we called the Horseshoe Toronto's first concert club. And that we wanted to continue our presentation, the way we presented shows mm. at the New Yorker in the bar. So it was Toronto's first concert club. You know, and we didn't just like turn the lights on when the band was on. We did light shows and all sorts of stuff. But, um, so, so that's how we got there. And as I say, it was, um, kind of a tight but small community mm -hmm. that followed this music and what we did because we were bringing jazz to the New Yorker as well. Mm -hmm. And we were bringing reggae. I mean, the I3s, Bob Marley's backing band singers, Rita Marley and Judy Mowat and Etta James, all, oh, wow. all kinds of music. Mm. And our competitor was the more or less the El Macombo. Right. And at one one time during our run at the Horseshoe, a publicist, I guess, from Capitol Records had mm -hmm. a meeting with us there. And we asked her, not that I like Blondie, but, you know, she was just starting to get noticed. We said, yep. why, why, why is Blondie playing at the El Macombo and not for us when we are the perfect place for yeah. her, the right place for her? Well, you don't have carpet on the on the floor you'll never get any of our acts because there's new car no carpeting on the floor really? so anyway it was a it was a struggle i believe and the people that went know that it was great booking and mm -hmm. um and fun times and exhilarating times so we were asked to leave because he now wanted to go back to country music yes and before we had um gone in there he had had a play that it was sneezy waters was in it okay and he wanted to put that back in, which was a lie. He didn't, but he wanted to go back to country. The punk and whatever scene just, it just wasn't happening for him. Mm -hmm. And, um, so our final two nights, we wanted to bring together. We only had so much time because of the hours and whatever. Mm -hmm. Too bad we didn't start at noon because we could have put a lot more groups on, mm -hmm. but we wanted to showcase and say goodbye to, to our time there with some of our favorite bands, yep. local bands. So it was two nights, a Friday and a Saturday night. The first night we called the last pogo, which was a play on words to the last the last waltz yep. by with the band. The band. It was punk's last stand. And the second night was going to be a little more, I don't know what the word would be, um, diverse. Um, okay. You know, fe starring, featuring like bands like the Everglades and Rough Trade and Reggae. And we called, because of Rough Trade, mm -hmm. we called it the last bound up. Uh. <laughs> Instead of the last roundup. Yeah. And um, anyway, the horseshoe gig it was it was great fun and it was packed and there were two off-duty police officers drinking at the bar mm -hmm. and they got, as they got drunker the place got more crowded and rowdier and blah blah, blah. and they decided even though they were off duty that they were going to show their presence mm. and they wanted to shut the show down just as teenage head were ready to go on oh and they were the the final band on the show and um they forced us to close the show down. I have DJed every show and every movie I screened in my entire career. Music that suited the bands that were playing, suited the audience that was coming to any of these events. So I'm at the bar, I at the at the mixing console, 
And I had to tell everybody that the show was canceled and would you please leave? Oh, jeez. So I did that and I pressed the cassette, turned it on. And of course, what, what do you think? What was the appropriate song for, to play after Teenage Head had been shut down by the police? Disgusting by Teenage Head. Which? Disgusting. Disgusting. Anarchy in the UK. Oh, okay. So we did Sex <laughs> And all of a sudden, the place sounded like, I always describe it as a thousand lumberjacks slamming wooden uh, bar chairs into tables. Oh, wow. It was like trees were falling everywhere. It was a full riot. And it was. The next night when we came in to do the last show, uh, the kitchen, which was, um, when you're looking at the stage, it would have been to the left where the staircase is, okay. going down into the bathrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a kitchen. It was filled with broken tables and chairs. <laughs> you know, if you haven't seen it, you won't get it. But if you've seen Rod Steiger playing Al Capone in the movie Al Capone, there's a scene where he's in the uh, jail yard and they're shoveling coal and all the inmates beat him up. But big, mo- big mounds of coal. That's what it looked like in the, <laughs> in the, um, in the kitchen. <laughs> oh, wow. So it was still it was fun. serviceable though the next night for the, for the last bound up. Yeah, not as many tables and chairs. <laughs> <laughs> well, that uh, that made history. Yeah, the last photo. And on the second night, we were just starting to get this stuff was just starting to take off, mm-hmm. not take off, but get popular. And Moses Neimer, who had the new music yep. in City, for some reason he ignored us pretty much. Hmm. You know, they used to. Um, they used to broadcast live shows from the Alma Combo yeah. and whatever on TV. Mm-hmm. And they ignored us all the time. And we were right across the street, but they ignored us. Didn't want to shoot our shows. The afternoon of the last, of the last bound up, mm-hmm. he calls and says, can we have a meeting? Mm-hmm. We didn't know what the meeting was about. And we're sitting there and he says, we'd like to shoot your shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a little too late, Moses. We're on our way. Thanks. <laughs> That's too bad. So well, you missed out. But it was, you know, it was a good show. And Colin Brunton, who um, he and this kid Randy Terrell, mm-hmm. they were the first people I ever hired in business. And it was when the Roxy, when I needed help at the Roxy, because mm-hmm. it was so crowded and so busy, mm-hmm. uh, that I hired them because they used to come every night to watch movies. And Colin wanted to get into the film making. He shot the Last Pogo. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the help of friend Patrick Lee, and it was like a 25 or 35 minute movie. Mm-hmm. And then years later, decided to revisit it and see where everybody was at and get opinions of the times. And if you want to read about or know about the Toronto punk scene, don't read any books, just see The Last Pogo. It's called The Last Pogo Jumps Again. Yeah. And everybody's in it years later, but talk about the scene and how it developed and where it developed. Anyway, he he did that. And, you know, if you don't know Colin Brunton, he's like king of independent film producing. Most recently, he um, produced uh, Schitt's Creek Mm -hmm. for the first six seasons. Yeah. Popular show here in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for accommodating me today. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show. There's some great stories. Thank you. Yeah. All right, this has been No Sleep Till Subbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Gary Topp. Until next time, folks, take good care. Mm-hmm.
Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Suppery, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.